Hi, you're listening to audio from Rock Hill Church. To check out more resources, please visit rockhilllawrence.com. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Happy Father's Day to those who can receive that as a father or those who have fathers still with you. I pray that it would be a day of blessing, um, even if there is uh, hurt or pain mixed in as we live in these kingdoms of men and the kingdom of God. That song, thank you, worship team. I don't know that there's been many songs over the last few years that have been more like an anthem uh, for me. It comes to my mind frequently throughout the week, and I heartily recommend it to you to learn if you don't, don't know it. Uh, welcome if you are a guest. We're really glad you're with us. A lot of our people are doing the summer thing uh, in and out, uh, especially this morning we feel it, but... Uh, so some of you may be live streaming, there, there's the camera, welcome, or uh, you may be watching it later, record this, we're glad you're here. So today is an amazing text, uh, we're going to hear Jesus talking about his relationship with his father. That happens sort of fortuitously, I didn't plan it, sketch outlined that way, it just stumbled into it this morning. It's also a really hard text for me. Uh, not, not because I have fatherhood pain in my life to speak of. Uh, it's hard because it's one of those we could spend about like days on sitting in, simmering in. And so it's really frustrating to compress it in 30 minutes. Um, but it is our task and, but be warned, it, I can only skip a rock across the top. This is one of those, maybe I say that every week, Brian, it's problematic, you know. But this is one of, I would say, you need to sit with a bit and simmer in. So our story last week provides the context for today. The story last week is about a man who gets healed by a pool, not a swimming pool, maybe there is some some uh, swimming that went on from time to time. Mainly a pool is where people went and gathered to bathe and to uh, often honestly congregate and, and see one another. It's this context of Jesus healing a man who had been unable to walk for a very long time, 38 years as a matter of fact. Jesus doing this created a backlash in the community, particularly because it happened on Sabbath, and this man is now behaving in ways you're not supposed to behave on Sabbath, and this is going to trigger a backlash, which in turn is going to trigger a response from Jesus. That's what we're dealing with today. Jesus has been bouncing back and forth between Galilee, kind of where his roots are, in Jerusalem, scholars call this the festival cycle. Jesus has kind of come, was in Jerusalem, he left because popularity was growing, he went kind of home, and now he's back again for a festival. While he's there, he does this miracle. 
He's in Jerusalem, which is the hub, kind of almost everything Jewish. And he is going about his business, but he's on the scene now. He's in his public ministry, sometimes as an introvert, I suspect that he wishes it wasn't so public, that, that he's there and he's doing it. And the air in Jerusalem is kind of getting denser right now by the day. It's filled with, for some, curiosity, for some, suspicion. Either way, it's pretty suspenseful for a lot of people. Jesus has been behaving and talking in ways that are attracting some people in and is raising concern for others. That's what's going on. And as our beloved author, John, Jesus' friend, is telling us the story, he's also pulling back the curtain a little bit and, and saying some pretty big things about identity, who Jesus is. He started off a little mild. He says he's greater than John the Baptist. It's not that hard to be greater than a Baptist, but he does say that. But then he goes on and says he's the, the Lamb of God. He's the Son of Man, which had a lot of underpinnings under that term. He's the Son of God, John's telling us. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. So all of this is starting to feel designed a little bit. Like John and Jesus are sort of working together here to trigger questions in communities like us. Who is this? What's going on? Is, is this some disenfranchised, like half-witted rebel who's raising up a group of half-witted rebels around him? Is this some like strange, almost science fictional character, sort of half-God, half-man? Or could it be that what Jesus is showing and teaching, and now John is interpreting, could there be truth in this? That's why it's starting to feel like all this is designed for, for us to think about. And the words of Jesus today, especially if we try to read them a little bit through Middle Eastern eyes, and specifically Jewish lens, they're, gonna, they're very radical in nature. We're going to hear Jesus talk in the third person a lot. That's Middle Eastern, as George explains to me. That wasn't uncommon to talk. You remember Bob Dole? He used to talk about himself in the third person. He'd say, well, Bob Dole said, you know. We're going to hear Jesus talk about himself in the third person some today. But that's not really the radical part. We're going to hear him get deeply, deeply personal. We're going to hear him say that he's not only doing what he sees his father doing, but he's doing it at every turn. That he's being prompted by God to say and to speak. And this is a father who loves him deeply. This isn't some far off presence. This father's showing him everything. And Jesus is working from that place. 
This, these words are ex- going to be explosive. They're going to create a rift in the community of really epic proportions that they won't recover from. They're going to create such oppositions. His words are so inflammatory that you could argue that what we're going to read today is really kind of the, the spark that ignited the opposition. And this puts Jesus on the path to get killed. You could make that argument. So let's listen. This is from John chapter 5, starting in verse 16. Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Jesus responded by saying, My Father is working to this very day, and I am working. For this reason, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus answered and said to them, Very truly I say to you, the Son, there's our third person, is unable to do anything by himself. He can't do anything but apart from the Father. He's doing what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father is doing, the Son likewise is doing just that. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he's doing. And he'll show him greater works and you're going to marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to those He wills. For the Father judges no one, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that everyone will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever is not honoring The Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Very truly I say to you, the one hearing My word and believing in Him who has sent Me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's not coming into judgment because He's moved from death to life. Very truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and it is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those hearing will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, in the same way He has given life to to the Son to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority To exercise judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when everyone in their graves will hear his voice. The ones who have done good will come out into resurrected living. But the ones practicing evil into resurrected judgment. I am unable to do anything by myself. 
What I hear, I judge. And my judgment, it's right. For I do not seek my will, but the will of the one who sent me. And now perhaps you feel why we can't cover this in a few minutes. Let's pray. God help us. Lord, we have listened to your word. We've listened to these amazing words of Jesus without intermission. What would it have been like to hear them as he was saying them for the first time? We can only imagine, but Lord, now your spirit quickens them in us, for us, to us, and we now hear them. So Lord, we're asking that you would give us ears to hear as you often said it, not just audibly, but would would these words be like manna, like words of life for us? Would they be nourishing? Would they provoke us into a new frames of reference for our lives? Would they cause us to want to be different? Would they spur us into growth in the way of Jesus? Lord, what we're asking is, would your spirit take your word and do what only those can do? For we cannot. But we can say yes. That you have enabled. So give us the courage, the clarity, the gumption as your spirit speaks to us, whatever you might put your finger on our lives. That may be challenging. It could be feel painful. It could feel exposing. Whatever it is, would you give us those things to say, yes, Lord. Here am I. I receive your word. May it be to us according to your will. We pray this in your name. Amen. So Jesus, I think something interesting about this text is how quickly he launches into this deep dive theologically. I mean, this is the, he's at the deep end of the pool if they're still standing around the pool right now. He's saying he's doing what he's doing, even on the Sabbath, because he's watching God do what he's doing. And John tell us, tells us, because that's the case, persecution begins. Starting with breaking Sabbath, that's the first infraction, breaking Sabbath. Sabbath began at creation. You may know that story if you're familiar with it, God created the earth in seven days, and then we're told on the seventh day, he what? He rested. So this God re- resting from his work, it, it becomes kind of the theological frame of reference for what came to be known as Sabbath, for a community of people, for a culture beginning with some families. They begin to imitate this way of God. We will work for six. We will stop on one to rest. This becomes embedded in the culture. In fact, it doesn't just become embedded. It becomes codified as God gives his people the law. Number four of the Ten Commandments. Remember it? Remember the Sabbath, God says. Remember it. Remember to rest. 
Now, if you were a Jewish theologian in that day, this whole thing of God resting started to get a little bit problematic for them. And here's why. People were like getting born on the Sabbath. Sometimes people were dying on the Sabbath. Sometimes people's donkeys were falling in holes in the ground on the Sabbath. And like people needed God on those days on the Sabbath. I mean, you, you don't want your donkey to fall in the hole on the Sabbath. So the theologians were scratching their theological heads with this. It's like, wait a minute, we think God's resting. So they begin to, they begin to work this out. And they begin to realize God resting is a bit different than us resting. And, and as they worked it out, they realized this really isn't rocket science. After all, he's God. Uh, if he's God and he can be everywhere all the time and he knows everything, then I think he can figure out how to rest and be at work. In fact, he can probably figure out how to be at work and rest. At the same time, he's God. So, they, so God got an exceptional clause for, from them. He, he, if your donkey fell in the hole or you, or you had a baby or someone in your family died, you didn't get an automatic email response out of the office that day. God was with his people even on Sabbath. So when Jesus makes this comment, God is always working. Here's where we're going with this. That wasn't particularly problematic. But it's the little word that comes next. It's a little word, kago. That's how you said it in the Greek that John's writing in. Kago. It just translates, and I. It was an associative little word, a little conjuncture, English majors. It was a way of Jesus not just making a statement. He's tethering himself. My father's always working. Cago. And so am I. That's the problem. That's the spark that ignited the opposition. This little word Jesus is using is being used to unite himself with God. He's used it to unite himself with his father whose name was God. So John tells us from this day forward, things began to change. The Jews are seeking all the more to kill him. Not just because he's breaking the Sabbath. I mean, they knew how to deal with that. But he's calling God his own father. He's using a really personal pronoun there. His own father. It's like saying, he, he's calling him dad. It's a possessive pronoun. He's calling him his own. It's, it's, it's like dad's you saying, that's my boy over there. You know, or, or, or that's my sister, or that's my mother. I'm, I'm proud to be affiliated with them. They're a reflection, I hope, you know, of me, you know, and I'm so proud of that. Jesus is making himself equal with God. And what's interesting here is that Jesus won't deny it. In fact, he's going to say more about his union 
with God. So according to Jesus, the healing on the Sabbath, not a problem. Asking this man to carry his mat on the Sabbath, not a problem. And then put the equals in there because this is a case of God working. He's making this explicitly clear. So this is like one of those Jerusalem, we have a problem moments. This is more than Sabbath breaking. The implications of what Jesus said in that little four-letter word and in this little sentence was nothing short of revolution. My Father is always working, and I am working. This is a problem because to be Jewish meant being committed to, the real, to some theological realities. One, God is one. There's no division in him. We believe that, by the way. They also believe that there's only one God. There's not two, there's not three, there's not a million. We also believe that, by the way. One God. And they also believe he has no equal. He is the Lord of hosts. We believe that too. These were distinctive Jewish doctrines. Not many people held them in that time and culture. It was pluralistic. They had many gods. And not only that, but anybody who claimed to be God or anyone who like crafted something and said this is God, that came into severe punishment and judgment. People like Pharaoh for example, in the Old Testament, or Nebuchadnezzar, or King Ty or Hiram from Tyre, those people who, like, whether implicitly or explicitly, raised them up as a deity, came under the judgment of God. The first commandment of the ten addresses that you will have no other gods before me. So this makes Jesus' words here so challenging. Don't miss it for him to make this implication. My father is always working, and so am I. I'm tethered to him. What he's doing, I'm doing. What he's showing, I'm seeing and doing with him. This wasn't a small thing. I can understand why this would be so difficult. Can you understand it for these Jewish authorities? I think if we don't understand why it's so difficult, we might be quick to judge them. We should be careful. But it does beg the question, if you're there, what advice would you give them, these religious authorities? What would, what would you say to them right here if you could just step in and go, hey, time out. Things are going not so good right now. What would you say to them? Well, I think we might say, be curious, slow down, lean in, move in closer, take a deeper look than jumping right into conclusions. So I think that's one thing we might say is just slow down. Don't give way to this resistance you're feeling right now. Don't give in to that. Get curious about the resistance. Ask questions of it. 
We've been training in that way as a community, haven't we, for the last several years. But I think we'd have to say more. This isn't just a matter of slowing down. I think we'd also have to say something like, you all need to entertain the possibility of getting a whole new frame of reference. Because it's not just a matter of looking deeper, it's becoming open to another possibility. And that's precisely what John has been doing with us. From the very beginning, remember how he started? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him. Not too problematic yet, but then John pulls the surprise in verse 14. And the Word became what? Flesh. Embodied. Human. A man. It doesn't give a lot of explanation on kind of how that happened because it, there's so much mystery for, even for John. He, but he's stating a reality. And then he says something. Hey, just to be clear, we beheld it. I was there. We saw this thing happening. It invaded our lives. We were curious and much of it didn't make sense at first. But make no mistake, this was revolutionary. What Jesus is saying. John's been proclaiming it, it, calling it the kingdom of God. Jesus has been preaching it. God's doing something different, something new, and something big. The old point of view, the old reference that these Jewish authorities are holding, it's not going to hold this. So I think we would say, you're going to have to get a new frame of reference, a new way of thinking about God. It may feel contradictory right now to your frame of reference, but actually it's not. But it is going to have to get bigger. This kingdom of God thing is not God on top of a mountain far off. It's not an angry God. It's not a cold stare in the sky. It's not filled with nation building. It's within reach. It's available to you right here. The kingdom is at hand, Jesus would say. And John's trying to tell us the kingdom of God is actually walking around right now. He's among us. He just healed a man. You're hearing him right now. And this man's not like an arrogant, power-hungry self-promoter. He's this humble man that avoids crowds. He worked with his hands. He's a carpenter. This isn't like an Egyptian or Babylonian king claiming deity here, which made it even more puzzling. This is God in the flesh. And you're going to need to warm up to a new frame of reference. I think that's what we would want to say. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if they, if we could have been there and done that, you know, and they'd have said, oh, thank you. That really helps. Well, we weren't there to do that. And I don't know that it would have helped. (laughs) 
because they're not going to entertain a new frame of reference. They'll not conceive of anyone. Here's, this is important. They're not going to conceive of anyone claiming to be tethered to God, equality with God in any way but one, and that is they're declaring rivalry to God. They're acknowledging independence from Him because their frame of reference is there's one God. And here's the great irony in the story. Jesus is claiming deity, but He's not declaring rivalry. In fact, he's doing the opposite. He's claiming deep, deep dependence. Being united, being one with his Father. And so that's the subject of the rest of this chapter. Jesus articulating how he's unified with his Father. And he does it in a number of ways, and I'm just going to grocery list quickly a few ways right here in our text. We'll see more in the coming weeks. He's saying, you're, we're, me and my Father are united in what we see and do. I've already talked about that. The Son is unable to do anything by Himself. Why? This is, this is a kind of simple logic. Why is He unable? We're not used to saying what Jesus can't do. Why is He unable to do anything by Himself apart from God? There's only one good answer. He's God. For him to do something apart from God would mean he doesn't exist. Secondly, he says, we're united in life. This is maybe the most robust part of this, I think. He says, the Father has life in himself. Now, that's an important statement because he's saying life is native to God. He didn't create this life. He, he, was, he is the life. He and life go together. You can't have God without life. You can't have enduring, everlasting, eternal living the way Jesus is talking about it without God. It's native to God. And then he says this, as the Father has life within himself in the same way he's given life to the Son to have what? Life in himself. Same thing. It's native to Jesus. Third, he says, we're united by a common will. We want the same things. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to those He wills. And then He adds, I do not seek my will, but the will of the one who sent me. Isn't that beautiful? Whoever, Jesus is saying, I give life to whoever I want. Oh, but, oh by the way. I'm not seeking my will, but the will of my Father. Do you see the interlocking unison there? He says, we're united in judgment. Boy, he says some really things you got to untangle here. And we don't have time. The Father judges no one, but he gives judgment. He's given judgment to the Son. Now, that's some kind of delegation. God is the source of life and of judgment, but he's committed both to Jesus. Life and judgment are main themes of the gospel. We need to pause just for a second here just to say these two themes, life 
and judgment. They, they sort of articulate and they address the choice each of us has before us. Will we align ourselves with Jesus? Will we attach our lives with Him in faith and confidence and repentance? In surrender? And experience life? Or will we not? Will we reject that? Will we find our reasons to not receive and experience judgment? So this is a really dense thing Jesus is saying here about life and judgment. Very truly, the one hearing my word, this is verse 24, and believing in him who sent me has eternal life and is not coming into judgment. He said it better than I ever could. If you don't circle that verse 24, if you will, that's a big one. He's moved, she's moved from death to life. Finally, he says, reunited in love. For the Father loves the Son. There's the driver. Happy Father's Day. There's the driver. It's not judgment, it's love. It's driving this thing. It's fascinating. Jesus is making these claims, but he's saying, I'm not doing this by myself. I'm doing it as a son with his father who is loved by him. Humble, obediently obeying my father. This whole relationship is, is just awash in this love. This is a marvelous text. It's mysterious, isn't it? Now, unless you want to spend the rest of the day talking about this, um, we need to start asking a question or two from it and see if we can land this. And, and it's, the, it's the same question, essentially, that when we come together is, so what? What do we do with this? What do we glean from it? And I'm just going to offer two suggestions. The first one is, Maybe don't try to glean anything from it right away. Sit with it. Simmer in it. Let it, let it like trigger appreciation in you. Let, let it marvel you. I know Jesus said, don't, don't marvel at this. I'm saying, go ahead. He, he's okay with it. Let it marvel you. Let, let, it, let it move you to worship. Be with it. Worship our Father who loves His Son. Worship our Father who so loved the world, that's you, that's us, that He gave His Son. I think the second big thing is to ask for yourself, what's the so what? And here's what I mean by that. Specifically, I want to encourage you to ask, what are the ways that Jesus is describing being united with His Father what are the ways those should be echoed in your life? What are the ways, I, I gave you five quickly, there's more. What are the ways he's describing how he's with his father to be imitated by you with him? 
After all, the core of this relationship with Jesus of being an apprentice to him is imitation. And we even see like a mentoring and imitation in this text. I'm doing what I see my father doing, imitation. Now we know it's more than simple imitation for them. Why? Because they're sharing the same essence. So now I'll give you an example now as his children of God, who, by the way, have been given his spirit. Essence now living in us. His spirit has come into our lives. So how do we, what does it look like for me to imitate and echo this I'm working with the Father. I'm seeing what he's doing. I, I can't give you like formulaic answers to that, by the way. That's, that's why you sit with it. And you say, Lord, show me. How, how would this flesh out in me? I'm not Jesus. I haven't lived from eternity with the Father. I'm adopted. I've been grafted in. But how does this echo? How does this reverberate? through me. Maybe it's a little different than Jesus, but maybe there's some commonness here as well. That's the kind of question I'm asking here. How are these unifying traits to be echoed and imitated as a people? Not just as an apprentice of Jesus, but as a community. What does it mean for us to be united in Christ? Together, We're going to take communion in just a moment together. That's a, that's a symbolic way, among other things, that's expressing, expressing our unity with Christ at the cross. That's where we meet Him. This is mysterious, isn't it? But these are the questions we must sit with and ask. What, what is Jesus saying and what does it mean for me? I can't spoon feed that to you. You got to sit with it. It's the only way you get it. The only way you get it is to dialogue it at Freddy's later. Those kinds of things. As a community, we, we learn together. We listen for the voice of God in one another. We, we begin to untangle and work out. That's how good theology is formed, is in community. In closing, there's one thing I want to suggest as a community as we seek to bear witness to Jesus, then I think we can imitate pretty readily. And that is just simply this. Pay attention to the deeply intimate language Jesus is using. How deeply personal it is for him. Jesus has been very vulnerable in the way he's talking about his relationship with God. He's not, he's not articulating some formula, some five easy steps to salvation. He's talking about his father. He's not trying to get them to sign a contract. He's inviting them to enter something. To become something. You know, if you ask me to talk about my love for Cindy. Or my love for my children. All four of them. Or, or my mother or sister. Like, you better sit down and unpeel your banana because it's going to take a while. You know, I just, I just can't like give you three steps. This is what Jesus is doing. 
He's talking about something very deeply personal. So I think we can learn to imitate that way. When we're sharing this good news of the gospel, we must make it personal. These aren't abstract ideas. They're life. They're words of life. They're wrapped in flesh. They live on the street. They walk around and heal people by bathing pools. And they carry mats. And help donkeys get out of holes and all kinds of things. This gospel is deeply personal. So who is God to you? How is He Father to you? I want to say, talk about that. Who is Jesus to you? How is He Savior to you? How is He Lord? How is He brother? How is He servant to you? How is He friend to you? How is He God to you? Talk about that. Imitate that way. He's showing us. There's so much clarity in his witness here. My father is working. Cago, I am too. That little word packs a powerful punch. And I. So what's your and I? What is our and we? We're going to now turn to this practice called communion. It was given to us by Jesus. It's a, it's a means of remembering what Christ has been for us. Expressed in what he did historically in time and space by giving his life as atonement, making us one, united with Christ. It's a symbol, yes, but don't trivialize it or cheapen it by just saying it's only a symbol because it's a symbol, but it's more. It's a symbol that's packed. It's representing this thing we've been talking about. This mysterious, marvelous expression of love wrapped in flesh. So enter it that way as, as best as you can. Um, there's grace, you know, if you feel like, I am barely awake this morning, Jim, you know. I, I don't know about the deep dive thing. That's where grace comes in, and that's where it meets us. That's, what, that's the whole point of the cross, is to say, your best ain't good enough. It's not. It never will be. In anything you do, the cross of Jesus meets us there and says, yeah, I know. You don't have to be. Come as you are to him. That's where he meets us. We're going to do it a little bit differently than we've done it. Uh, some from our worship and kind of stage team, they're going to come and stand before you. Uh, one on each side will be holding the, uh, the, the bread. And then a few paces apart from them, a person will be holding uh, the juice. The bread represents the body of Jesus, the juice, the blood of Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we invite you to watch. Participate by watching people receiving. The person who's 
holding the bread. They're going to be standing right here. They're going to hold it, and you're going to take just a single piece of bread, and they're going to speak to you. They're going to say something like, eat this. This is the body of the Lord. And, and you're going to take it and eat it right there on the, on the spot. Does that make sense? Pretty simple. Then you're going to move a, just a couple pieces down, and the person with the juice will be here, and they'll be holding it. And they're going to say something like, take and drink. This is the blood of Christ spilled for you. And then you'll take it and drink it. So we're going to do that in just a moment. We're going to want to give you a few minutes first. Uh, chance, if you want to come on up. And, uh, and then those of you who are going to be offering can maybe sit on, on the front pew. That'll, that'll be great. I'm going to read this uh, original historical text when Jesus instituted this ancient practice that we've come to call the Lord's Supper. I'm going to read it, and after I read it, we're going to give you about five minutes, okay? It's just going to be quiet. Chance is going to play. It's appropriate when we enter this. Even though we know it's only a symbol, we know, we, we know this is a really important practice for the church. And so we, it's appropriate that you sit with it and simmer and, and think about what Christ has done and think about your own life under that and with that what he's done. Sometimes when I'm doing that, when we're doing that, God will reveal something that's amiss in my life. Maybe there's a sin in my life that needs to be confessed. We want to encourage you to do that. It may be so layered that you're not really sure what to do with it. Will you begin addressing it? You may not be able to put a period on the end in five minutes. That's okay. But you say, God, by your grace, as you're shining the light on something in my life, I'm, I'm before you as I am. I don't even know if I have the strength and the courage to do this, but I'm putting my yes on the table. And I'm counting on that you're going to meet me there. That's what confession is. It's to acknowledge who we are, but it's also to acknowledge who he is as we come to, uh, to him as we are. So you can confess that. You, you may have a pause in your soul that says, I need to do more business with this before I partake. That's okay. You have the freedom to do this, to pause and not come today. Uh, we would encourage you to let the Holy Spirit be with you and speak to you. This may be a point for some of you like, I want to trust my life to Christ. And this is my yes. I, I understand sufficiently. I'm coming to know him. I still may have questions. So your yes may be, I'm going to ask the next question. It may be, I'm, Lord, my yes is here. I want to be your daughter. I want to be your son. Right here, right now. If that's the case, I'm going to be on that first pew. Come talk to me. We'll pray together. I'll pray with you. Or the person you're with may, may be a better person for you to talk with and pray with. Please do. It doesn't have to be me. So after five minutes of that, I'm going to come, or, or excuse me, the four of these people are going to come. And uh, I will say a quick prayer just so you know we're coming now. And, um, and then we'll take a few minutes to do that. So let me, let me read this text as a way of helping us move forward. Matthew 26 
26 to 29. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. Take and eat. This is my body. That's what our brother and sister or brothers are going to say to you this morning. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's what they're going to say to you. Probably not that, all that, but just a few words. This is his blood. Drink it. It was given for you. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Let me pray. Lord, be with us in this moment. It's a sacred moment for us. Lord, as we try to take advantage of the few minutes we have, we ask you would be with us. You'd be clearly with us. You would be richly with us. Speak to the longings and the cries and the pains of our heart. Thank you for what you've done by giving your body and spilling your blood for us. I'm going to give you a few minutes.